Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. On today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Coick, is joined by Dr. Ruth Ann Reese. Ruth Ann is professor of New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary, where she is the chair of the New Testament department. Dr. Reese serves on the board of the Institute for Biblical Research, and she received the Beeson Chair of Biblical Studies in 2013. Dr. Reese received her BA from Biola University and her PhD from the University of Sheffield. She has written several books, including Second Peter and Jude for the Two Horizons Commentary Series and a commentary on First Peter for New Cambridge Bible Handbook. She is working on a commentary on James for the New Covenant Commentary Series, and she is involved as a layperson at Apostles Anglican Church in Lexington, Kentucky, where she teaches, serves as chalice bearer, prayer team member, and lector. Welcome, Ruthann. I am so glad you could join us on Alabaster Jar. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Ruthann and I, we go back further than propriety would allow me to state, I think, right? (laughs) We've been friends for a long time. (laughs) And uh, mostly it's been through our work actually with the Institute for Biblical Research, which is a group of evangelical scholars who want to hone their skills as scholars, but do so for the church. And so, yeah, so we've gotten to know each other over many years in that capacity. And I'm so excited that you're coming on the alabaster jar. And we're going to talk about a variety of things that are close to both of our hearts. We'll talk about biblical narrative. I know that's something that you really enjoy teaching at Asbury Theological Seminary. You really enjoy engaging with students in the overarching biblical narrative. And we'll also talk about the general epistles. Those are the letters at the end of the Bible that <laughs> sometimes we don't get to because we're so exhausted after reading Paul. And, and then also, before you go, I do want to spend a little bit of time on a, I think, particularly difficult passage, First Peter chapter 3. You've wrestled with this in your new commentary. And as you and I have noted, it, it can be misconstrued and misinterpreted greatly to the detriment of women in the church. So so we want to tackle that for sure. But let's start with your teaching of the biblical narrative. What Tell us what that is, really, this teaching biblical narrative, why you enjoy it so much. So I do love teaching biblical narrative. And one of the things that I say to people is it's not actually a survey of every book in the Bible, right? It's not like a walk through the Bible, go through each individual book. Instead, it's really about a biblical theology that holds the whole Bible together. It gives us a way of thinking about a context for all the various things that we read. And it reminds us that narratives have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so our narrative begins in creation, and it ends. We actually know where we're headed, and that's what Revelation helps us to see. And what we're headed towards is the city of God, with God dwelling in the center of that location with all of his people gathered to himself. That's where we're headed. And that story, it begins in a garden, and it ends in a city with a garden in the center of it. And 
So we trace, how do we get from that beginning point to that end point? And one of the things about narratives is that they have middle pieces that really change the way that you view the narrative, right? So they don't always progress in a nice, steady way. You get unexpected climaxes in the middle of the narrative. And so one of the great things that I love to do is to show, and, and I got this quote from my colleague, Dr. Joe Donjel, so I have to give him credit, but he says, every theme in the Old Testament comes to its fulfillment in Jesus. And one of the things I love in the work of teaching biblical narrative is to show how Jesus is not only the great themes like prophet, priest, and king, themes like the fulfillment of the temple, but also smaller themes like Jesus is the great warrior, Jesus is the great shepherd, and we could go on naming other kinds of themes that come to have their focal point in Jesus. And the reality is that when we are coming along in the biblical narrative, when I teach it, we progress from Genesis and we progress through the narrative books, and then we come to the Gospels and Acts, and we put a letter to a poll, and then we come to Revelation. Well, when we come to Jesus, there's a way in which if all we had was the Old Testament, we might not expect Jesus to show up in the way that he does. But when we look at Jesus, Jesus provides a lens for reading backwards. So we also not my phrase comes from Richard Hayes and others, but he provides a lens for reading backwards into the Old Testament so that we understand the Old Testament with a new depth and a new fullness and a new orientation. As well, I love unpacking that for students and taking them through the highlights of this narrative that we uh, belong to and share in. And you get a whole semester to do that. So what I'm going to ask you right now is a completely unfair question. <laughs> but let's say that we were students sitting in your class, could you give us just maybe even a bite-sized morsel of what you might highlight? Because I think a number of our, many of our listeners, they're reading through the Bible, maybe even every year reading through the Bible, which is wonderful. So what should be some of the, either the aha movements that they can expect or some of the things they might miss, you know, that in your class you raise to the surface? So I love that question, Len, and partly I love it because I tell my students that you should be prepared to share the outline of this narrative in five minutes or in an hour, depending on okay. the amount of time that you have to talk to somebody. And I also tell them that you should be prepared to share this narrative in a coffee shop or in a church. So this, we actually do an exercise in my class where we work on telling the story to each other in five to 10 minutes. Then, awesome. I had no, listeners have to know this was not a setup, right? Like uh, this is new to me. <laughs> That's why I love um, talking to people on the alabaster jar. Yeah. So, okay, you've got your five or 10 minutes. This is awesome. And I'm actually going to shorten it and just say one of the ways that I've helped students to remember the narrative is we use titles. And those titles give us a kind of outline and then you can fill in based on how much time you have. Do you have an hour? Well, then you can spend 20 minutes on covenant. 
But if you've only got five minutes, you better spend 30 seconds on Covenant. <laughs> so the titles that I use, again, giving credit where credit is due, these are drawn from a variety of writers, but Sean Gladding, Brian McLaren, and uh, M.T. Wright, and Craig Bartholomew, all people who've worked in biblical narrative and who've talked about titles. And all of them like the letter C. So the letter C is the letter that carries this outline. And so the outline, just in brief, is from God's creation. There's C. There's a crisis or a catastrophe that unfolds. And one of the things that I really want to highlight for people is that our story begins in creation. It begins with God's goodness, begins with God's abundance. It begins with human beings in right relationship with each other and with their God. And I think sometimes we start our evangelism and our storytelling with what's wrong with the world. But the biblical text starts with all that's right with the world. And it just has a one of the things I do, we spend a whole week only on Genesis 1 and 2. And one of the things I do is we gather together and we light candles. It's usually dark because I teach at night. And we read in a Lectio Divina kind of way, slowly, contemplatively. We read the Genesis narrative and we ask ourselves, what is it that stands out to us about the goodness of God? And I tell my students, I want you to revel in God's goodness, to delight in God's goodness, so that when we get to the catastrophe one, we can both feel the impact of that catastrophe, but two, we can realize that it's not the beginning of the story. The story begins with God's goodness. And then there is this catastrophe. And you know, from that catastrophe, again, one of the things I do in my class, we have a tendency, and this is one of the things I'd say to everybody out there who's reading the Bible, we have a tendency to label stories. And so we'll give a label to Genesis 3, like the fall. Now that label came from the early church fathers. And when we, re when we read it, we're like, okay, I know what the fall is. That's where everybody sinned. And then, you know, things went downhill and now I can go on to the next part. But what I would encourage you as a Bible reader is let the details of the text come through and forget about the labels that the church and various people have put on them and let yourself be there present in the story. So when we do that, one of the things we see is man, there's some strange things going on in Genesis 3. Right? There's a, an odd tree, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a talking serpent. There is the man and the woman are there together by the tree, but the man never says anything. And there's this sound of the Lord walking in the garden, whatever. Right? There's all of these things that are very unusual about that chapter. And allowing ourselves to enter into that and experience what the biblical text is saying. And here's the other thing I'd say, which is don't be afraid to ask questions. So one of, some of the best conversations I have with my students are conversations that start like, well, I've always been taught that. And then they fill in some doctrinal statement. And then they say, but this text doesn't seem to 
agree with that doctrinal statement, and then we have a conversation. And it's okay to read the text and allow those questions to surface in your reading. So I'm going to go a little bit more quickly. This is also what happens in my class. We spend a week on first on Genesis 1 and 2 and a week on Genesis 3, and then we start speeding up and we enter into the covenant. And God makes all of these covenants with various people, first with Noah, and then with Abraham, and then with the people of Israel through Moses, and then with David, who, to whom he promises an eternal kingdom and throne. And one of the things that, that I like to do in that work of looking at those covenants is to unpack the relational aspect that God is inviting his people into a relationship of loving commitment in which God is committed to his people and he asks that his people return that commitment to him. And I think one of the things is that we, some of us have been taught, oh, God's love is unconditional and it doesn't have any, there's no, I don't know, no barriers on it. But there's, an, there's a thing and, in which actually God's love is given to unworthy people, but is not unconditioned. There's, yeah. God has expectations about how we will respond in relationship to him. And those expectations are true in the covenantal relationships of the Old Testament, and they're true in the covenantal relationships of the New Testament. That's absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called is yeah. Ephesians 4.1. Yeah. And you're right. We tend to jump over that. It's not that there are strings attached to the gospel, as you put it. The unworthy are invited in always. It's unconditional in that sense. And it's not that he picks someone who's unworthy because God knows in his foreknowledge that they'll end up being useful or good. But when you are now part of, now you're saved, let's say, you also become part of God's family, right? Yes. And you are now in Christ. And so, yeah, there's a relationship that happens. And as we know, relationships are, there's a mutuality, there's a loving sharing going on. So yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. It just helps us, again, not to put any burden on someone as though they have to earn their salvation. That's not at all what you're talking about. It's so rich. It's like we're part of God's family yes. and that, that's such a blessing. Yes, that's exactly right. And the way in which God dwelt with his people in the garden, God desires to dwell with his people now. He makes that possible in the Old Testament through the tabernacle and the temple. He makes that possible in the New Testament through Christ, the new priest, new temple, the perfect priest, all of these kinds of pieces. And so I'm going to skip ahead, but just say that the rest of the narrative is to examine how does Christ fulfill that covenant, offer to us a new covenant? invite us into new covenant relationship with God, and then empower through the Holy Spirit, the church, to be his witnesses in the world, both through their life and through their words, so that they can invite more and more people to participate in this covenantal loving relationship that God offers 
and that he wishes to see consummated in the future in which all those who love and trust him are gathered around him in his presence. And that's the big picture overview. Now, of course, if we had a whole semester, we get to go in more depth. Yes, yes. Well, let let me ask a more detailed question here, because you mentioned the covenants and you mentioned Noah and Abraham, Moses and David. But I know that you also focus on women in the biblical narrative and the importance that they hold. And so we want to make sure that even as we hit the highlights and mention male names, there also we highlight women's crucial participation in this narrative. Can you tell us a few that we should pay attention to? Absolutely. So we write women are part of the biblical narrative from the very beginning. So even when we talk about Adam, in Genesis 1, Adam, Adam, is a way to speak of humanity. And from the very beginning, humanity is created as male and female. And they're both seen as being good. And they're both given the instruction to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all of that belongs to men and women together. So... And I just have to put a little bracket here and say, by the way, the word dominion there does not mean to exercise one's power in an abusive kind of way, but rather it means that men and women are invited to be stewards of God's kingship. Right? So God is the king who created everything. And then human beings are invited to be stewards, to be co-regents with God in the stewardship of his creation that he made. That's just a little bracket. So from the very beginning, men and women are part of this story together. And ideally, they work together for the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. So when we come to Noah and his wife, and the, the, right, if these are a couples, four couples that go into the ark and whom God blesses with his rainbow of, I will never destroy the earth in this way again. But when we come to Abraham and Sarah, we find a very interesting couple. And I actually love to explore this couple with my students. I've been helped a lot by Paul Borgman's book, Genesis, the story we've never heard in pointing these things out. But one of the things we see is that Sarah, from the very beginning, she is in a kind of dangerous position, right? Off Abraham and Sarah go to Egypt. God did not tell them to go there. Abraham is afraid. He lets his fear get the best of him. And Pharaoh takes Sarah to be her wife, his wife, takes her into his harem. And then we have the whole long set of stories that unfolds and somewhere around Genesis 20-ish, I have to look exactly. We have a story that looks almost exactly the same, but it's like 20 years later. And it's the story of Abraham is afraid and he goes into a foreign country and Abimelech sees his beautiful wife and takes her into his harem. And his women all become barren and he, the Lord confronts Abimelech. And Abimelech confronts Abraham, and there's a very telling verse. And this is the verse. Abraham confesses, I said to Sarah, say that you are my sister wherever we go. 
When we look at that verse, all of a sudden we realize, this is Abraham's pattern. He is afraid and he's traveling around in these foreign lands and he is not doing a very good job of protecting his wife. And Sarah, through all of this, we don't hear very much about her in some of this, but she retains faithfulness in the midst of this. Whatever's been happening. One of the things that Dr. Boardman says in his book is, what if Sarah had gotten pregnant before this? Would the paternity have been assured? Question mark. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. So what we find out then is that Sarah, she has this laughing relationship with the visitors who come. I'm old and I've passed menopause and I'm not going to get pregnant. And yet she receives the gift of Isaac. And through her and through Isaac unfolds the story of the people of God. So over and over again, we're going to see that women um, in the very, how do I say, it's a very, it's, a, it's the female experience, one of the female experiences to be, to experience both pregnancy and barrenness, to experience difficulty with conception, that all of these things are part of women's lives. And we see this life in the biblical text, and it happens over and over again. Sarah, Hannah is another example in which there's this meeting of God's promise in the midst of what seems like impossible circumstances. And so that's one of those threads that we see over and over again in the biblical text as we look at the role that women have. Ruth Ann, I love how you are just drawing out the richness of this one individual story of Sarah within the greater narrative of the Bible that you were describing just a few minutes ago. I think it just really makes the story of the Bible come to life for us and remind us that it maybe is not as disconnected as it may sometimes seem at first glance and just gives us a view of this greater arc of God writing this story in the lives of his people over the centuries. And on this podcast, you're drawing this out already. Like we love to look at the intersection of where these things come together for women. And in this particular story of Sarah, you're talking about drawing this thread through the story. So for those of us listening that sometimes can feel like maybe the stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament feel a little disconnected. Could you help us draw more of those threads? Are there particular stories, maybe particularly of women, that you see drawing this arc, forming a connection between the Old and New Testament? Absolutely. I will talk about women in just a second. But one of the, again, kind of strategies for Bible reading is when you see the name, you're reading the New Testament, when you're reading the New Testament, and you see the name of an Old Testament character, you should go back and familiarize yourself with that person's story. And that could be Abraham, it could be Sarah, could be Rahab, another person that shows up multiple times in the New Testament. So that work of going, oh, what's that name? Okay, I need to go back to Joshua, or I need to go back to Genesis and reread about that person. Now, here's the other piece. We can never retell, I won't say never, but it's very hard to retell the whole story. Nobody's going to just copy down all of Genesis, the chunk related to Sarah, and put it in the New Testament. They're going to rely on their reader 
to know something about Sarah's life and to bring that knowledge with them into the text. So, for example, one of the places you already mentioned in your introduction, I love the general epistles, and so I'm just going straight there to the general epistles. But one of the places where Sarah shows back up again is in Genesis 3. And I'll just read a verse for you, Genesis 3, 6. And we'll talk about the whole passage in a minute. But it says, Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. You have become her daughters as long as you do what is good and never let fears alarm you. Now, and this is first, this is first Peter 3. First Peter chapter 3, verse 6. Yep. Verse 6. Got yeah. it. Thank you. And it's the end of an argument. That's why I say we'll come back and talk about the passage. But here, the Literally, there's one sentence about Sarah, and the sentence is, Sarah called him Lord. Now, right, this is supposed to be part of a text that's about women submitting to their husbands. Sarah doesn't really call Abraham Lord in a context where she's being submissive. So scholars have been busy asking themselves, what is Peter trying to say using Sarah in this context? And a lot of scholars, and I would probably locate myself here as well, have basically said Sarah's submissiveness has to do with her faithfulness to Abraham in the midst of the dangerous situation that he put her in. And so that, you know, knowing that larger story about Sarah lets us go back and it's going to connect, right? Knowing that larger story about Sarah is going to connect us both back to the Old Testament and help us understand how could she be the reason that's being given in this logical argument that's going to unfold. Yeah, and I think that would be helpful to go into First Peter 3. And then I think also some one curiosity that I have is we've talked about Sarah. So, sometimes she is mentioned with Abraham here in First Peter or in Hebrews 11. But she's also mentioned, now this isn't Paul, <laughs> but she is also mentioned in connection with Hagar. Correct. Sarah is a three-dimensional character, yes. for sure. So you may have something you want to say as well about that story with Hagar, but let's stick with First Peter 3 for the moment. I think this passage is really important to discuss because it's a passage that has sometimes been used to say to women, and again, this relates to what I've already been talking about with Sarah, but to say to women, well, I'm sorry that you're in an abusive relationship, but the Lord says that you should submit and you should stay with your husband. And I don't think that's what this passage is about at all. I do want to give you one of the things, and we haven't talked about this yet, but when I teach biblical narrative, one of the pieces of teaching biblical narrative is not just the biblical text, but to set that biblical text into the actual real historical time period in which it took place. So we're talking about Egypt during the time of the pharaohs, or we're talking about the time of David, or we're talking about the Babylonian exile in terms of history, as well as in terms of the biblical text. And so when we get to the New Testament, one of the things that is absolutely crucial to know about the New Testament is that it is written in the midst of an empire. And when we read 1 Peter, I date 1 Peter early, sometime in the 60s. And so when we read 1 Peter and we see it in that time frame, we're in a time frame where Nero may be in power and 
Christians are beginning to experience persecution. And Peter is writing, he's a Jewish person living in Rome. And as a Jewish person living in Rome, he's a minority person with low status. He's not a citizen of the empire. He's living as a foreigner and stranger in that place. And he's writing to a group of people who he actually calls exiles. And they are also people, whether they are real exiles or spiritual exiles, either way, they are people who are not in the center of their society. They're people who are on the margins. And Peter addresses two particular groups. He addresses slaves and he addresses wives. And he is talking to them about, in the context, the whole church is listening to this book. And the whole church, all the people, no matter what their status is, no matter who they are listening to this book, and they're listening to the advice that Peter is giving to people who have low status and low power. And it is not easy for a woman to just get a divorce and leave in the first century. And it's impossible for a slave to leave their master. And Peter is saying to these slaves and to these wives, how can you live as Christians in the midst of a culture that is not, you know, you're living as a minority within this majority culture. How can you live as a Christian? And then he's speaking to wives, particularly wives who are not married to believers. But this is not about Christian marriage. So when, if somebody's in a Christian marriage and a Christian man is trying to use this passage to tell you that you should stay in, a, in an abusive marriage, that is a misreading of the text. Does not have that context. The second thing is, Peter is actually talking to, he's addressing the people with the lowest status. He's saying to them, slaves, you have the capacity to live and act in a certain way. Wives who are doubly minoritized, they're both not married to believers and they're minoritized from their majority culture. You have the power to live as believers. What does that look like? Well, what that looks like is behaving in such a way around your non-Christian husband that they can be one without your speech. So there's this work of having a pure and reverent and holy life. What Lynn was saying about earlier, that you you have this way of life that's part of who you are as a Christian. That way of life allows the woman to be an evangelist in her marriage. And it's not, you know, evangelism by getting all dolled up. And here I want to say, this passage is also not about like, oh, you can't wear pretty clothes or you can't fix your hair up nice. There's an aspect here of when you're in a marriage to a non-Christian person in the first century, you do not want to get all dolled up and then go out to some meeting that your husband isn't part of. That communicates something very different than getting dressed up in our 21st century Western culture. So 
what he's saying to the women is adorn yourselves with your purity and holiness of life, with the kind of heart that you have, with the kind of compassion that you have. And then he says in verse five, it was in this way long ago that the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by accepting the authority of their husbands. And again, in the first century culture and in the culture of the Old Testament, this reality of accepting the authority of your husbands was part of the way in which the whole culture worked, both, both Jewish and Christian and all the rest of the cultures around them worked in that kind of way. In this way, Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord, and you become her daughters. And here's the piece, I think, as long as you do what is good. So here's this emphasis on living in a way that's good and then never letting fear alarm you. So one of the things that Peter says to them is you have the capacity to live with this person who's not a follower of Jesus without being overtaken by fear. And I think that is a really powerful piece of what Peter is saying to women. Now, the last thing I want to say is that when we apply that in the first century, one, I think women, just as Peter did in this epistle, women have to be empowered to choose what they are doing. In other words, it's very different for a woman to make a decision to be in a certain relationship than it is for someone to tell her that she has to stay in that relationship. Those are two different pieces. And then the second piece is throughout 1 Peter, the wives become the examples to the rest of the church. How are you to live in a majority-minority situation? Well, it's by your holiness, your purity, your doing good in your culture, and um, being ready to say something if you're asked about it. And that's the example. That's the way the women are instructed. And then that's the way the whole church is instructed later in chapter three. Yes. And I, I was thinking that later in chapter three, they also face the real live possibility of physical harm based on their testimony similar to the slaves face physical harm and that phrase to the wives not give way to fear i think is a nod to the reality of the physical violence that existed in the first century world it was very real and it wasn't criminalized in the way that it is today i think for you, you make such a great point. I'm so glad you underlined that this is not about Christian marriage. And I think for churches today, any hint of domestic violence has to be understood as the crime that it is and needs to step in, especially if it is a Christian man. But even if it's a non-Christian husband, the, this, is not a, uh, this is not a text that says it's okay to hit women. This is a text about women who are, like you said, uh, being empowered to, to hopefully persuade their husbands by their goodness in the Lord. But it is not, it's not a case of accepting domestic violence at all. And, uh, and we can read, I was just reading the other day of uh, Justin Martyr, who would have written 
maybe, well, in the 140s, 150s, something like that. And he talks about a Christian woman who was married to a non-Christian. She was a wealthy woman. And he expected her to participate in all of his partying. And she realized this is a debauched way of life. I don't want to do it. And do you know Justin Martyr supported her decision and supported her divorce? And the hus- the ex-husband was angry at his this. And so he couldn't do anything to his wife, this former wife, but he could attack the male Christian teachers around her. And two of them, I think at least two, if not three, lost their lives. Wow. They were martyred if you will, because they were teaching Christianity. So there was a, uh, that was a high price Mm. to pay, but I think it's an important word that early in the church's history, we haven't done it enough, but we have, even in the early church, they were willing to stand with an abused woman and say, this is not right. Yes. And a couple men lost their lives in the effort to get her in a safe space. That's the story that we want to remember and hold up. So, yeah. Exactly. And when you're saying that, it just strikes me that she was not in a relationship with a Christian woman. I'm sorry, with a Christian man, but with a non-Christian man. And even in that circumstance, which would be more like the first Peter circumstance, Justin Martyr says, no, not acceptable. And I think that's one of the pieces too, is to recognize that Although violence is indeed more frequent in the first century than we're used to in our contemporary society, the ideal of marriage in the first century, the ideal was a loving relationship, even in the non-Christian world. And so abuse was not seen as a good way to live, even amongst people who were not committed to Jesus. And when the church, yeah, so I, yeah, the church today just needs to hear this loud and clear. This is not in any way promoting or allowing or permitting any kind of violence in the home. Yeah. You know, we've been, the time has flown by so quickly, Roseanne. I can't believe it, but I do want to give you just a minute or or five to talk to us a little bit about the general epistles, just Generally, you know, first and second, Peter, James, Jude, tell us a little bit about why those are such important letters for the church today. What are some of the things when we, when we read them that we should pay attention to? Mm, it's so good. And I have to say, I very rarely hear preaching from these books. I would love to hear more preaching from these books because they do have a lot to tell us for the church today. So let me just briefly say this. James, I think, is a wisdom book. And wisdom books ask us, they give us kind of black and white choices. And they ask us, which side do you belong to? And there's an element of James, like James is not a gray area kind of guy. He really is like, are you a friend of God? Are you a friend of the world? And there's no place in between to stand. And that is a challenge that the church needs to hear today as we think about our life as the church. And I think one of the things in wisdom literature generally, but in James in particular, is just this question of, what if I can't live up to this? What, you know, I feel like James is asking me to be perfect and I know I'm not perfect. So why should I, why don't I just leave this book aside like Martin Luther did and get on with the rest of the Bible? 
And the truth of the matter is it's an invitation to meditate on where you are and to ask God to help you. And one of the great things about James is it starts out with ask. Ask the Lord for wisdom. He delights. He's a giving God who delights to give generously, open-handedly to those who ask him. So that's James. First Peter, this letter from one marginalized person to a marginalized church, asking this question, how do we live in the midst of a culture that's not like us? And it invites us to holiness. So over and over again, Peter's focus is on the kind of behavior that we have. And that behavior, unlike Paul, where it's like, let me tell you a lot about theology and then give you some ways to live. Peter's book is more, let me give you some theology and then let me tell you about how you should behave in light of that. And then theology and then behavior and then theology and then behavior. It's much more interwoven. And then we come to Second Peter and Jude. One of them probably knew the other one and copied in one direction or the other. It's debated still. But these are books about what we do when we have false teaching among us and how we respond to that and what it looks like to hold true and hold fast to the faith that Jesus has given us. And so, you know, all of these books, that's the thing, you know, when you think about Paul, you're like, Paul is doing this. And of course, he has different topics in different books. But the general epistles are quite different from each other both in terms of genre, their letters, but their letters sometimes that have other bits of things interspersed with them, and in terms of the messages that they communicate. And so I'm always hopeful that there'll be more sermons and more teaching and more spiritual growth and development from these books and the things that they have to teach us. Oh, thank you. And I'm glad you're writing on that because producing good commentaries will help pastors and lay leaders, Bible study leaders to feel comfortable moving into these books, right? You're given the to, to teachers on this. So thank you. And thanks so much for a phenomenal conversation. Wow. We just, we accomplished a lot. I'm slightly tired, you know, because there's just been so much good stuff, you know, and I'm still processing so much, but thank you so much, Ruth Ann. This has just been great. Thanks for joining us on the Alabaster Jar. Thanks for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Alabaster Jar podcast. We upload new episodes every Tuesday, so be sure to subscribe, share, and join us back here next week. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Ruth Ann Reese, we've left some links for you in today's episode description. Next week on the podcast, we are joined by Dr. Brittany Kim. Dr. Kim is also an Old Testament scholar, and we will be looking more closely at the story of Hagar. It's a great conversation that you're not going to want to miss. So we will see you here next Tuesday for another brand new episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast.